Welcome to Behind the White Coat Podcast. I am your host, Eric Malara, a first-year medical student. In this podcast, we listen to the stories of those underrepresented in medicine or those with an exceptionally non-traditional background. Today's guest is Dr. Minerva Romero Arenas, a general surgeon at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley and has been an assistant professor there since 2017, is a native of Mexico City, Mexico, and she received her bachelor's degree in cell biology and French at Arizona State University. She then received her medical degree and her master's of public health at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Tucson. Dr. Minerva Romero Arenas has completed her general surgery residency program at Sinai Hospital of Baltimore and completed a fellowship in oncologic surgical endocrinology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Center in Houston, Texas. She was awarded the Young Physician of the Year at the 2019 National Hispanic Health Conference. She is greatly passionate about recruiting the next generation of surgeons and has been greatly involved in mentoring the youth through various organizations. She is also a co-founder of the Latino Surgical Society. So please join me as we listen to Dr. Minerva Romero Arenas journey into medicine and surgery. Why don't we just start from the beginning, if that's all right. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself and, you know, what was life like growing up for you? Sure. I was born in Mexico City. I lived in Mexico City till I was eight. And at that time, my family um, moved to Houston, Texas. I grew up in Houston for several years, and then I moved around quite a bit. I actually lived also in Southern California in the Inland Empire, and I moved to uh, Phoenix, Arizona. I went to college at Arizona State University and medical school after that at the University of Arizona, so I feel like I've been fairly mobile. And it's actually, um, I think it's given me a very unique perspective. So I definitely felt a lot of close ties with my family, um, not just in the sense of we're Latinos and we all have this close cultural ties and, and, and familia that is really sort of a high value, but that, that initial moving away. Um, actually it's my mother's side of the family that moved to the U S my dad, my dad's side of the family all stayed in Mexico. And so I've always had that, uh, close connection with that side of the family, but also the obviously huge distance. Um, and then when I moved to other States, um, definitely the distance from sort of my extended family, grandma, Tias, cousins. Um, so I feel like that gave me a, a lot more of a perspective to value my family. And so my understanding is you are a first generation college graduate. So what was the support of your family? Like, was that ever part of, you know, for lack of a better word, plan in terms for you going to college? Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm first generation. Um, I would say, I think I'm first generation high school graduate, um, first generation college graduate, first generation professional education. 
my family, like many immigrant families, came here to seek a better life. And so it, it was always in the plan. The plan was always go to school, do better than we did. We, we came here to seek better opportunities. So definitely the support was there in terms of pursuing whatever that dream was. But I think beyond that, there was little guidance uh, to, to sort of really be provided. And, and, and it's just the nature of, you know, my family didn't go to college here. My family didn't navigate the whole system. Um, and, and we really didn't have professionals. And so, so that kind of mentorship was not definitely anything that was provided from within. I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. You mentioned you were um, first generation high school graduate, which is, you know, pretty remarkable, but that's something that maybe, you know, a lot of your classmates, even in high school, maybe don't understand or wouldn't recognize. So what was that like, you know, going to high school and you wanting to pursue college? Um, did you find a lot of classmates with similar backgrounds or what was that like? So it's a little interesting for me. I went to three different high schools, like I had mentioned, because I moved around so much. And so the the group of people I grew up with in Houston, for example, um, certainly a lot of, of my close friends graduated high school. Um, but but I grew up in a school district, I guess, where it was a very diverse immigrant community. And so, so the goal of pursuing that was there. Unfortunately, we also, I also have a lot of close friends who, who didn't make it, um, you know, friends who, who died as a result of violence, gang activity, friends who dropped out of school, um, many friends who sort of um, were teenage parents early on. So I do think that the high school achievement was obviously a great accomplishment. Um, but even beyond that, so many of my peers didn't pursue college education. And for you, was that normal in terms of, you know, you're a kid. So was that kind of like a normal way? You didn't really know anything else. Like you seeing all this violence, you said that uh, a lot of your friends at early pregnancies, did you ever realize like this isn't normal? Cause I've spoken with people who come from like these type of communities where they see violence. And the theme that I get a lot is as a kid, that's just kind of normal to them and they don't know anything different. Um, was that like for you? I wouldn't say that it was normal because certainly my parents, um, my family never allowed that to be a normal part of, of who we were. Uh, but it was definitely something that they didn't want, at least, you know, I will say we didn't want to be part of that statistic, you know. And so it, it's a very fine line when all your friends are doing certain things and how do you how do you navigate that? I, I, I tell this story often, which is I actually... <clears throat> So when I came from Mexico, I was supposed to be in a, in a certain grade in school because I didn't speak English and because I was actually young for the age cutoffs here, I actually got like demoted. And thankfully, 
the school teacher um, recognized that I was ahead of of the class that I was put in, um, she was able to get me pushed back up. I was demoted two grades. She was able to get me bumped up one, right? And eventually I got out of the ESL program. Um, Yeah, so eventually I got out of the ESL program and I actually was tested for um, gifted and talented classes. And I, and I, and I was able to get into those. So I, I thought it was such an interesting turn of events that I initially was told that you're not smart enough or like you're clearly behind. And then later I was actually told, no, you're way ahead of the curve. But fast forward a few years, I'm sitting, um, I'm sitting in detention with a friend. Don't, don't, Let's um, let's ignore the why I'm in detention, but I'm sitting in detention with a friend. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and you know, back then we didn't have te- right, we didn't have phones, we didn't have text messaging. So my friend and I are flicking notes across the the desk uh, secretively, and and my conversation that day in detention with another friend who is also in gifted and talented classes with me is whether or not we should be joining a gang. And, and I remember this conversation so often because, because I, my answer was you and I are in gifted classes. Like we're not the kids that should be joining gangs, but you know, at 12, 13 years old, those were the kinds of decisions I was having to make. And, um, you know, and, and I actually, I moved away from, from that school. And I think that probably did have an impact on my path later on, but I still keep in touch with that friend and, and they didn't move away and, and they became part of the statistic. It's, it's sad to think that a 12 year old would even ever think about that, especially in this country, right? You know, thankfully you chose the quote unquote good path. And so it's, it's just, for me, it's just kind of sad that, you know, and a lot of young people are still going through this decision-making. Mm-hmm. Was there maybe anything else along the way that helped you go on the so-called right path? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I really have to credit, I think the strong foundation built in my household. Um, you know, I, I mentioned that I was the first to graduate college. Um, my grandmother, uh, she really raised me. Um, she was able to only complete a portion of grade school education. She raised seven kids by herself because she was widowed at a fairly young age. And my mother also was unable to complete grade school education because when my grandmother was widowed, she had to contribute to the household. Um, Nonetheless, um, I think it's really important and it's always been a a really clear distinction for me. My mother is wildly successful. Uh, When we did move to the US, she actually um, pursued her GED. As I was finishing high school, she started her own classes to to obtain a, a, a high school equivalency diploma. And I think um, that message was always there, which is, um, I think, one that is really um, 
has really impacted me is strong women. Um, and, and they were able to overcome obstacles that I can't even fathom. And they always really um, push that, right? So it was always uh, go to school before you get married, have kids, you know, don't go crazy with the partying. Don't, you know, it wasn't so restrictive that you can't do anything. And therefore I went and was the wild child. It was always, we have a purpose for being here. And that purpose is to seek a better life and to pursue the opportunities that they did not have. And I think that was really ingrained in me that if I didn't sort of do better, that in some ways I was um, not respecting uh, or not uh, being, you know, maybe being ungrateful for for the sacrifices that they made, certainly bringing, uh, and I say they, like the adults in the family, bringing us kids over. I think it's certainly something that um, kids who, you know, who were brought as immigrants, I think that that deep sort of sense of responsibility to to achieve that American dream is certainly there. And was medicine ever part of this picture when you were in high school? No, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And was that just you literally didn't know anything about it? Like, were there no in your community... Um, and it is a, it is a, a fact, I'm not just saying this, but you know, Latinas for the most part are one of the most underrepresented groups. Do you think that was part of it? Like you just not seeing a lot of Latinas in medicine? I didn't know anything about careers, career paths. I, you know, to be honest, I wanted to be a, um, ballet folklorico dancer that, <laughs> that would have <laughs> been my alternate life. Um, when I, uh, when I moved to Arizona, uh, there's, there's a test, uh, that is, that was offered. I don't know if it's still offered or if it's offered everywhere, but where, when I went to Arizona, there was an aptitude test that was administered and somebody recommended or, or that test recommended that I become, um, a nuclear weapons scientist. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it certainly, I think it didn't sit right with me um, to develop nuclear weapons, but it did, I think, open up that, okay, well, what am I going to do? Because I know I have to go to college. And I think that's when I really started thinking, well, what are the things that I enjoy outside of, um, I would say outside of the fine arts. Cause I always did enjoy that. And, you know, and like in high school, I, I had a, an award for being chemistry student of the year in, you know, in grade school, I had math with awards. And so I kind of started thinking about the sciences and, and careers in that regard, but it certainly all came from, I needed to sort of navigate what was it that I was going to do. Honestly, I was not, ever really sick. I also never went to the doctor as you know, many, um, you know, I, I never had like well child visits, so to speak. I, I, so I was not exposed in that regard. Um, I'm not really sure where the, the spark for medicine came in, but once I found it, it definitely drove me 
um, in a, in a great path. And it's something that I've never regretted. Right. So it was just kind of like a gradual process for you. And so you're not part of the statistic and then you go into college. So another hurdle for you, right? You don't have any role models or people who've gone through the process. So what was that like going to college for you? Right. You know, I think my mom did a great job of always centering me and in the U.S., you get a lot of negative stereotypes for Latino communities. And I think my mom always kept me really closely tied to the Mexican history and Mexican heritage. And in that, I was able to find positive role models. And I think that helped me quite a bit in the sense of I knew that there's a whole country of us that could do all those things. And so just because I had moved didn't make it impossible for me to continue to achieve those things. Right. And, and I, and I, and I only, I, I cling on to that because I know that my perspective going into college, for example, was a little bit different than some of my friends who were born and raised here. And they certainly felt the negative stereotype threat and they felt um, a, a much bigger burden. I think that to some degree, the positive influences that my mom instilled in me, I think to, that certainly to some degree, some of it is just my own um, internal drive. But also, like I said, that immigrant, achieve the American dream, all of those things probably put together really um, impacted where I went. And so you're in college and you get the spark for medicine, right? So what was it like for you applying to medical school? Well, let me say that I, I did everything to try not to go to medical school because there were so many people that questioned that decision, right? And and so many people that said, oh, are you sure you want to do this? Keep in mind back then, there were no work hour restrictions. You know, there was really very little protection for physicians and, and specifically residency training. And, and it was a huge commitment. The, the, the usual questions about, are you sure? Don't you want to have a family? How are you going to be a mother? How are you? All of that definitely applied. And so I, I, I sought out other avenues. Ultimately, I decided that, that medicine was definitely still for me. I think one of the things that was really helpful, um, there was a program at the time, it was called MMEP. And it's gone through several name changes now, but it's still an ongoing program. And, and I did that at the beginning of college. So it was that summer between my freshman and sophomore years. And I feel like that kind of gave me a little bit of a roadmap. I thought it was really helpful that I, that I was able to get the guidance early on. And so I sort of found it like, okay, now I have a path to navigate and now I know that I should be looking for these opportunities and I, and I, it was almost like a little recipe to how to become a well-rounded applicant. Um, I applied to medical school. Um, I actually, I, I was accepted 
And I ended up deferring my first year uh, that I was accepted because at the time I was um, working on a research project and had applied for some grant funding that was approved. And I, and I felt, uh, I felt like it, it was my responsibility to sort of see the grant through at least to its first year. It was a three year grant. So, um, so I deferred my acceptance, but then I did end up going to medical school after that first year. So you mentioned this program MMEP that kind of helped you give you a little bit of guidance, but you know, in your time, it's not like nowadays, right? Where you have smartphone, instant connection, right? YouTube, you could find role models, you could find people who you can relate to podcasts, YouTube, whatever. So for you, when you hear like someone tell you, right? Like, oh, it's going to be too hard. Do you want to be a mother? Do you want to have a family? You're going to work, you know, a hundred hours. Like what was your process for when they told you that? Like, what would you do immediately after that? I, I would think about it. And like I said, I, I looked for other things to do. <laughs> so I, I, um, I, I explored different career options because ultimately the message I got was not that I couldn't do it, but that I needed to be a hundred percent committed once I took that on. And, and I think that maybe that was my own doing and turning their message away from something negative. I think when people give you this advice, they're genuinely trying to be helpful and they're really looking out for your best interests. It often comes across to us as they're doubting me or uh, they're, they're raising insecurities within me. And I, I guess I, I'm, I didn't take it like that. I just, um, I took their advice to heart and I, and I looked for other careers that perhaps could be just as meaningful and just as fulfilling. And I knew that whatever I committed to pursuing, I needed to know that I was going to do a good job and that I was going to excel. So I, I, I took that very seriously, especially as I realized that I would be putting people's lives in my hands. And that's not a responsibility that should be taken lightly. Right. That is actually a great perspective to take on that to not look at it as like someone's doubting you, but to actually see like someone's genuinely maybe caring about you. So, so you defer a year and then now you're going into medical school and once again, right, you're even more underrepresented in mm-hmm. medical school. You know, at the time, it, it was starting to get attention that being an underrepresented minority was something that could pose a challenge. Um, certainly something that I had become more aware of. And, and to be truthful, it was something that had um, steered me away to some degree from maybe even considering certain institutions. I I remember reading a lot about how Ivy League students were grateful to have an excellent education, but that they felt very isolated and that that was causing them um, difficulty academically. And so I thought, 
why would I want to set myself up for failure by something that, um, that, that can be as, that can be adjusted, like being in a supportive environment. And the, the U of A, um, actually was the school that I found tremendous support in and I was close to home and I could have the support of my family and friends, but also the environment itself there, I felt like was very supportive during, um, orientation, even before committing to the school, the office of, at the time they, it was still office of minority affairs. Those terms have changed since I was in school, but they had reached out and provided um, contacts of current students. They had welcomed my family to come along with me during the um, sort of second look uh, visit for families. And I, I really found that connection to be meaningful. With those groups of being outreach, have you noticed maybe any changes with medical institutions that maybe have improved in that with underrepresented minorities? I think, I, I think part of what we're starting to, part of what we're starting to see, and I, I can say this now that I'm in faculty, there's been a huge shift from the terms diversity to now becoming, um, so first of all, it was just minorities. Now we, we, we sort of graduated to, okay, well, we're actually looking for diversity, not just minorities, because we've become more inclusive of other types of diversity that are not specifically tied to race and ethnicity. The, the term, and, and I say the term, but it, it represents sort of a broader cultural shift, I think, in the medical education community, which it has gone then to diversity and inclusion because we recognize that it wasn't just about getting people through the door, but actually getting them through the door, through medical school and graduated. And there was a lot of great initiatives to get people from college to medical school. But then once you were there, any kind of floundering, the institutions, I think, were not really prepared to accommodate and help students succeed. You start to get a more diverse class, you start to get more diverse student needs, and perhaps the the plans and curriculums that worked for a certain student population, you need different resources to help other students also be able to um, take that curriculum in and be successful. Now the term is diversity equity and inclusion. And it's meant to understand where people are coming from and how we can really achieve that. I totally love that you mentioned that. And that's one of the main reasons why I'm doing, you know, this podcast is to kind of capture everyone's, you know, viewpoint, everyone's perspective. And so going off of like the diversity and inclusion, you mentioned uh, institutions are doing a better job at not just getting students into the door. So what have you seen, and for you specifically in surgery, has there been a shift in that in training, in residency, and then further on? Unfortunately, 
surgery and some of the subspecialty fields have been some of the areas where we lag far behind the other areas in medicine. Surgery has always been a highly competitive, very demanding field. And so uh, there's this perception that nobody wants to, quote, lower the bar. If, if I may quote other people, because it's certainly not a perception that I hold. Um, but the truth is, that's, that's the perception that has been held. And surgery residency programs have a very constant attrition rate of about 16 to 20%. That hasn't changed in many decades. And the numbers, even though there have been calls to action to increase and improve diversity in surgery, we actually, I, I actually just looked at this recently with a couple of my uh, mentees. The numbers in surgery, academic faculty have not changed in the 10 years since 2008 to 2018. Uh, in fact, when we look specifically at Hispanic and Latino academic surgery faculty, those numbers actually decreased. And so we often say in medicine that if we don't make specific changes, those changes are going to be made for us. And, and that's actually exactly what happened. So just as of last year, the ACGME, which is the body that oversees all uh, residency training programs created a requirement that all residency training programs had to address diversity within their common program requirements. How did you get into surgery then? I didn't, I didn't think I was going to be a surgeon. I thought I was going to work in primary care like everybody else who wants to come in and cure diabetes, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia because that's what um, affects our communities. Um, I, I decided very late and I, I really, I, I really credit the faculty that I work with for one, recognizing my hard work, because regardless of the fact that I didn't think I wanted to do surgery, I wanted to do a good job on that rotation. And so I did. I worked hard. <laughs> I worked really hard. I think I worked the hardest. Uh, I worked harder at the time, actually, than some of the residents that I was working with, only because the residents, by the time I was in my clinical rotation, the residents had just um, started the work hour restrictions, but those were not yet applied to medical students. And so oftentimes, by the rules, the resident had to go home, but the, but the student could stick around. <laughs> in any case, I really, I always think back to, I was close to finishing my surgery rotation with, I, I, I'll be honest, all male faculty. I, I remember seeing another uh, woman faculty, but I didn't really have attendings that I work with. So this is an all male attending team. And I'm in surgery one day. We're working uh, 
it happened to be that day, just the attending and myself, uh, the resident, I think was in another case. And the attending just asked me, why are you not going into surgery? And, and I didn't have a good answer. (laughs) I didn't have a good answer, but I think, you know, I, I, it speaks to, um, someone being able to recognize, um, a talent. And I think we certainly always talk about, you need to have dexterity. You need to have a certain, um, sense of responsibility for the patients, uh, certain qualities that we attribute to a good surgeon and sort of the, the, the ability and, and, and I think like I, I, I talked about before, you know, people who genuinely are just looking out for your best interest and care about what you're doing. And, and, and I think, you know, the audacity to just ask me, I think you'd be a good surgeon. Why haven't you considered it? Did you ever struggle maybe with like any professional or like personal identity crisis with like, you know, going to surgery versus, mm-hmm. you know, primary care and your culture and your community? So what was that like for you? It was, it was very difficult to reconcile that. I really, I had I mean, thoughts about, am I selling out? Um, mm-hmm. You know, certainly I, I didn't know necessarily how working as a surgeon would directly allow me to, um, I was, I was part of an MD MPH program. So I certainly had a lot of interest in pursuing work in public health and disparities. And, and I just wasn't sure how all of that would fit with surgery. I had to, again, educate myself on how to do that and, and what were the ties. Um, I felt like I might be selling out on what I initially thought I would do, um, as a future physician, I certainly envision myself helping patients through their diabetes and, and get better control of their chronic medical problems. And so, yeah, I struggled, um, with the identity, but I, you know, I went back, um, not just to my surgical mentors, but I went back to my college mentors who had sort of helped me, right. Get to medical school. I, I went back to my family and, and ultimately, um, I, I really couldn't answer that question. Why not? Well, so that was one of the biggest things was the why not, huh? Why not pursue it? And I think that's such a, such a powerful question. Like, what would you say to the student that thinks they're selling out and they maybe want to pursue a specialty or a subspecialty or something that they think won't get them directly working with the community? So... So I would say a couple of things and, and I want to, um, acknowledge that, um, I found tremendous mentorship from other Latinos within an organization called the Latino Medical Student Association. And I do think that when I felt, um, the burden of being the underrepresented, uh, minority or underrepresented medicine student. I certainly found a lot of solidarity and a lot of support in that, in my peers who were in that organization. I also realize now that the surgeons were never a part of that. 
and and I and I think seeing that um, as I became a resident myself, I have made myself available to organizations like LMSA and others to just introduce the concept that it is possible. And I've had countless students who um, who have come to me after you know a panel or a talk or a workshop and and they share those same exact same thoughts. I'd never met a Latina surgeon. I'd never met a Latina Latino surgeon. I'd never met a Latina doctor. I didn't think I could do surgery or I wasn't sure because I I don't know anyone. And so I think that role modeling is really powerful. But also speaking specifically to to you know the student that thinks about whether or not they're selling out. You know, I, I always tell my patients, surgery for me can be pretty routine, but I never want them to feel like that. I understand that surgery is one of the most anxiety-provoking, stress-inducing, you know, life-threatening processes that our patients go through. And, and I want them to know that they can trust me with that responsibility. I, I would say, think about how that patient feels when someone doesn't speak their language, they're, you're talking to them about amputating a limb or doing some treatment, surgery for a cancer or they're, you know, unconscious, uh, they have just been in a car accident and they're unable to communicate. Um, we are needed at every step of healthcare. And, and, and you're not selling out. In, in fact, because there's so few of us in other fields, I would say, why not consider a career in, in, in the specialties and the subspecialties. Going off of that, I'd like to talk about the Latino Surgical Society in which you are a co-founder of. So can you tell me a little bit about that and how and why it was started? As a resident, I had, I happened to have one night where I was the senior resident and two of my friends who were uh, junior residents, the three of us happened to be on call together one night. And it was sort of like all the stars and planets aligned, one, for that to happen, but then also, two, <clears throat> I had a terrible black cloud and it was a ridiculously busy night that was very stressful. Among the things that we talked about, one of, one of the things that certainly stood out was the fact that, you know, basically the entire surgical team was Latino. And, and we talked about how many people are in each of our fields, who do we know, and, and essentially sort of thinking, I can count on my hand how many of my peers are in surgical programs across the country. And I can, you know, count with my hands, like who in my medical school class or in my, um, 
graduating class of Latinos pursued a any kind of surgical residency. And so we really recognize that even though um, actually the three of us had been involved with LMSA as students and continue to be involved with um, organizations like LMSA, there really wasn't a place for ongoing mentoring for Latino residents in surgery and, you know, and probably beyond that for Latino surgeons um, as, as you make that transition from training to being an attending. Um, and it really sort of came about from ongoing talks from that. Um, the people that helped establish the, uh, the Latino Surgical Society um, we actually were all in training. I was a, I was a fellow at the time. Joseph Hernandez was a resident. Gessa Ortega was a resident, and Joseph Lopez was a resident. And it really came from that desire to provide that opportunity, that space where we could continue the networking and the mentoring that had helped us get to where we were. And why is it important to have diversity and inclusion in the medical field? As we have seen, for example, with the pandemic, health disparities exist. Systematic socioeconomic disparities exist. And bringing diverse voices to the table when we're discussing how to go about in resolving these inequities and the systematic problems, it kind of makes sense to have someone at the table that has experienced those systems and can point out the specific gaps in the whole, that the holes that, that make the system just not an equitable system. So on the one hand, it's been shown that diverse teams come up with better, more innovative solutions. I could say that for the for the for for sort of just saying there's data to support diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, but realistically, if you just look at the proportion of people, the makeup of the U.S., if you want to just go look at demographics, why is there not enough Hispanic, Latino, African-American physicians to the numbers that they represent within the U.S. population? And so the need for a concerted effort to actually achieve those goals is important. Because whatever we've been doing before, it hasn't worked. It hasn't actually led to change in the numbers. In fact, the numbers for the underrepresented minority physicians across uh, medical education really have remained fairly stagnant. And we need to do something different. And we need to make a deliberate and concentrated effort to diversify our field. What would be those next goals to improve that, to improve the, uh, the lack of African-American physicians, the lack of Latino physicians? So how do we improve that, 
maybe even from like a high school level or pipeline programs, like what can we do to maybe improve that statistic? Right. And I think you hit it right on the head of the nail. You got it right, which is to say it doesn't start at any one specific point. It's the the concept of the leaky pipeline. And so it's developing programs that um, allow for exposure to careers in medicine at an early age. It's sort of advocating for equitable uh, education systems where where you're not going to be underprepared for something simply by the zip code you live in. Uh, it's embracing the concept of holistic admission whereby you acknowledge that a an imperfect test score that is a result of Adversity uh, does not mean that someone is not going to succeed academically or succeed as a clinician. It's promoting, sponsoring, and nurturing people once they graduate medical school through residency, through fellowship, into their faculty careers. Uh, because what we're seeing is that there's sort of a more, re- it, it, it seems like it's really been a more reactionary um, process and and we really need to be more deliberate and more um, proactive. So I want to thank you, Dr. Arenas. I truly do mean this. I do appreciate this. And, you know, I just want to thank you for being a role model and a leader Uh, I think we can all learn from stories like you. I'm definitely learning from this. So on that end, are there any final thoughts? Um, Thank you so much for inviting me to talk about this. Um, The the only final thought I would add is is that we tend to be, um, I think we face a really... um, a wall when it comes to seeking help and and I think the only thing I would I would encourage students um, and anyone really who is struggling with with anything but particularly when we're talking about the academic side is to ask for help and oftentimes there is this huge um, obstacle to overcome which is perhaps our pride, an embarrassment, a, a sense of um, loss of identity uh, when you've been successful and, you know, and oftentimes sort of the only one that has been successful. To suddenly be the one that's struggling can be pretty devastating. But I, I, I would just encourage students to really seek out guidance and mentorship during those times. Uh, because often it kind of just snowballs and it becomes from a manageable situation to something that suddenly um, grows out of proportion and is a lot harder to redirect the course. Those are very wise words and I myself will take that to heart too. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate this. 
Well, thank you again. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Behind the White Coat. Please make sure you subscribe either on iTunes or Spotify so you can get notified when the next episode is released. Thank you for your time, and I hope you enjoyed this episode.